0: Well, our sermon text this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 39. And we'll begin by reading the first four verses. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. We pray that you would come now be our helper, be our guide, be our teacher. Show us marvelous things out of your word for our good and for the glory of your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been following Luke's narrative of the events leading up to the birth of Christ, which we celebrated last week. And it was quite the scene with the wise kings bringing tribute to Jesus, the baby, and heaven, in heaven opening up with a multitude of angels who were bearing witness to and singing the praises of God's glory for this newborn baby. And just by reading through Luke's narrative, one would be left with a number of questions. What now? Where will we find this baby and his family next? Who will have the privilege of seeing him next? Well, our passage answers those questions And while it might not seem as spectacular as the account of his birth, it is filled with wonderful truths that we can take to heart. The accounts and the characters that we've encountered as we've been going through Luke's account have been unique, but they've shared some common themes. Obedience, songs, and witnesses. And our passage today follows suit. As Luke relates his account of Christ's infancy, We see an intensification of these common features and they're brought to maturity in the events and characters in our passage. One thing that stands out as Luke recounts the narrative around Jesus' infancy and his birth is how the extraordinary breaks through in the midst of the mundane. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph are normal Jews going through normal Jewish daily life. We have a virgin... A barren woman, a priest, a carpenter, and shepherds. Not exemplary figures or occupations. You would have found the same people and professions in any Jewish town in their day. But there is something that does set them apart. And that is their longing and their patient obedience as they wait. Even Zechariah, though muted for his disbelief, can be sympathized with Given the miraculous news that Gabriel had given him, namely that his wife was pregnant despite their old age, and who she was pregnant with, the long-awaited forerunner of the Messiah. So the first feature that we've seen and continues on in our text is faithful obedience. The obedience of Joseph and Mary continues to be highlighted as they bring their newborn baby for circumcision on the eighth day, according to the law. And this was customary for every newborn Jewish baby boy. And so on the one hand, it's not noteworthy. However, this circumcision is unique. For one, every drop of blood from every circumcision that has ever taken place was stained blood. It was stained with the sin of of Adam. And thus circumcision was a picture of the need for a cleansing, a cutting off of the flesh so that one might bear the fruit of the Spirit. But this blood was unstained. And this circumcision was the first step in Jesus being the perfect and spotless Israelite, qualifying Him for the role of Messiah. But this circumcision was also foreshadowing another circumcision, one that would end his life. In Colossians 2.11, Paul refers to the cross as the circumcision of Christ. For in the cross, it was not just one part of his flesh that was cut off, but he himself, having taken on our flesh, would be cut off from life itself. Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant, and what it signified was that the flesh, the flesh had to be cut off, or that person would be cut off from Israel, the covenant people of God. It signified the need for the removal of the flesh, and in Christ's cross, the flesh is fully and finally dealt with. Luke also tells us that it's here that Jesus was given his name, the one that Gabriel told Joseph to give him, another indicator of their obedience. Luke tells us that they named him Jesus, but in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, he tells us why. This is when Gabriel comes to Joseph to explain to Mary what's going on with her pregnancy. And he says to him in Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is simply the Greek name, which in Hebrew is Joshua, which means Savior. He is named for what he always has been and what he took on flesh to do fully and finally. Save his people from their sins, which he will do. The next thing we see is Mary and Joseph presenting him to the Lord. Another requirement in the law, which is found in Exodus 13, 2, which is the passage Luke quotes. And it says, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Here we see the firstborn of eternity, the only begotten Son of the Father, being consecrated in His flesh as the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. More than anything else, again, Luke is putting on display Jesus' complete qualification to be the Messiah from birth. By God's grace... And through the means of faithful parents, the father is preparing his son for the perfect fulfillment of every jot and tittle of his law. Luke also mentions the sacrifice offered for Mary's purification, which actually reinforces her poverty. A woman who had just given birth was declared to be ceremonially unclean for seven days, at the end of which she would go to the temple and she would offer a sacrifice for her purification. Now, the normal sacrifice would have been a one-year-old lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove, but there's an allowance for poorer women. Leviticus 12, 8, and if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and and she shall be clean. Now, this is the part of the passage from Leviticus that Luke quotes, as I said, likely to reinforce her poverty. But we also might recognize in hindsight that there was indeed a lamb there, one that would not just purify her, but the entire world. So far in the narrative, we've been introduced to two couples, two sets of two witnesses. And there have been other witnesses as well, as Pastor Allen highlighted a total of nine of them several weeks ago. But couples or pairs of men and women bearing witness is a special kind of witness. They recall to us the garden where man and woman are at peace with God and testify to his goodness together. We have a younger couple in Mary and Joseph, an older couple in Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now we're introduced to Simeon and Anna who are near the end of their life. Together, they represent humankind brought to maturity, and we have much to learn about and from them. We're introduced to Simeon in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon is described with a threefold witness to his character. First, Luke describes him as righteous and devout. Like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, and Mary, Luke describes Simeon as righteous. And if he is righteous, he is righteous by faith, and his faith is an active and a lively faith. The pairing of righteousness, or righteous and devout, likely indicates the uh, close attention he gives to God's law and his carefulness in performing his religious duties. Now, we don't know if he was a priest or not. Many have speculated that he was because of the nature that he, of the blessing that he pronounces upon Mary, but we can't know for sure. But he definitely was a man of prayer and worship, and was no temp, stranger to the temple, even if only as a layman. The second descriptor that Luke gives is that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon is also a man of hope. As we will see, he is a man who is steeped in scripture and his faith steadfastly looks forward to God delivering on the promises he has made in places like Isaiah and the Psalms. Of the three Christian, chief Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, hope is often the most overlooked and undervalued. But think about what hope is. By definition, hope is grounded in God's word, especially the promises of God. Someone who hopes well has their heart filled with scripture. Hope hears God's promises and clings to them. Hope is also the proper posture of a creature in relation to Almighty God. To hope is to admit that one is not in control, but dependent upon God to work out all things his way, and on his timeline. Hope is a sign of humility and patience and is the fuel for faithful living in the midst of uncertain and difficult times. Lastly, hope is not passive, but intensely active. It's easy to mistake hope for inactivity, but the opposite is true. Hope is like a muscle that needs to be built up and flexed. Hope prays, hope fasts, Hope sings and hope feasts all in the confidence of God's faithfulness. It's interesting how Luke describes Simeon's hope. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. If you remember last week, we sang a song uh, that, that's title comes from the first several verses of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Well, the word translated consolation here in our passage, is the Greek word paraklesis, and it's the same word used for comfort in Isaiah chapter 40 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so, Simeon is truly waiting for Isaiah's promise to become fulfilled. But of course, paraklete is the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14, 6. But the helper, that's that word, paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Simeon is waiting for the Paraclesis of Israel because the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, was upon him, which is the third description Luke uses for Simeon. The Holy Spirit is actually mentioned three times in connection with Simeon. First, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Second, the Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And third, that he came in the Spirit to the temple. We read about this in verses 26-32. through And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus filled with hope and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has revealed things to him and he is aware and attentive. The Spirit also leads him into the temple. Being filled with the Spirit, he is filled with God's word as word and spirit always go hand in hand. Last time I preached, I recommended an app for family worship called The Daily Office. And if you've used it in the evening you have actually prayed this prayer and this blessing that Simeon offers here. It's called the Nunc Dimitis, and it's one of the evening prayers that's used in the Book of Common Prayer. And it's a fitting prayer to pray as the sun goes down and we retire from the day. This prayer of blessing is deeply rich, and there are a number of important insights we should take note of. First, we ought to see the Trinity at center stage. Simeon is led by the Spirit to the temple where he finds the Christ, grabs a hold of him, and blesses God the Father. This is a wonderful picture of the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Salvation is always this way. The Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, leads us to Christ through the church, the living temple, unites us to Christ so that we take a hold of Him by faith, so that we might bless the Father in and with the Son. Simeon is a personal picture of salvation as a whole, with each member of the Trinity working distinctly, but in perfect unison for the salvation of God's people. Second, we ought to see the peace of God in Christ. We first see Simeon's own peace, a peace that dispels the fear of death itself Simeon has seen and embraced death's soon to be conqueror in his arms and so his relationship to death is transformed remember it was revealed to him by the spirit that he would not taste death before seeing the messiah and god has delivered on his promise and now Simeon welcomes death with a profound peace second we see the prince of peace. Notice that Simeon calls Christ God's salvation. His name means Savior because he himself is salvation. We need to be careful to not consider salvation as some sort of economic exchange between two parties who exchange goods with Jesus simply standing in the middle facilitating the deal. Salvation is Christ himself which has important implications. Simeon here refers to Christ as a light for Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Bear in mind that the distinction between Jew and Gentile was a necessary one for a time, but incomplete. When God formed Israel into a people, it was was for the purpose of bringing God's own presence to the nations, so that in a sense, The whole world becomes Israel, the people of God. The essence of their existence was mediatorial in nature. They did not exist for themselves. God would come to dwell among them specifically so that the nations might taste and see that Yahweh is good. The problem is that Israel privileged their national identity too high, and it led to pride. The reason for this, ultimately, is the lack of a perfectly righteous king who could usher in a kingdom of peace, both within Israel and between Israel and the nations. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the nature of salvation in precisely these terms, and it's worth quoting at length. This is verses 11 through 19. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. A fallen world's most fundamental problems are twofold and they're related. We lack peace with God, and because of that, we lack peace with one another. But when we are united to Christ by the bond of the Spirit, we become adopted sons of God and now have peace with our Father. And we're united to one another in the body of Christ so that we have peace with one another. It cannot be stressed enough. Christ himself is our peace. In verses 33-35, through Luke goes on to record Mary and Joseph's response of wonder and amazement, along with another prophecy directed at Mary. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Though Simeon's message is a gospel of peace, he doesn't neglect the truth that peace often comes with a sword. Jesus tells us this himself paradoxically in Matthew 10.34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Mary knows this, of course, as she herself in her song proclaims how this child will lift up the poor and the lowly and will bring down the proud and the haughty. This is what Christ is referring to when he says that he came to bring a sword as he divides the faithful from the faithless and the wheat from the tares. What she doesn't know yet, though, is that this will ultimately cost her son his life as he is pierced through with the sword of our sins. Of course, Mary was one of the few women there at her son's unjust crucifixion, and I would venture to guess that only a mother could truly even begin to understand her agony. We're all likely familiar with the song, Man of Sorrows, which we tend to sing during Holy Week. But there's a song that's called Mother of Sorrows that attempts to capture the the, the agony of Mary at the foot of the cross. Speaking from Mary's perspective, it begins, O ye who pass along the way, all joyous, where with grief I pine, in pity pause awhile and say, was ever sorrow-like to mine. See hanging here before my eyes, this body bloodless, bruised and torn, alas, it is my son who dies, of love deserving, not of scorn. My son, my son, could I at least console thee in this hour of death? Could I but lay thee on my breast and there receive thy parting breath? Alas no comfort I impart, nay rather this my vain regret, but rend still more thy loving heart and makes thy death more bitter yet. Mary is not only Jesus' mother, she is his disciple. He came from her body, and yet more importantly for her, she belongs to his. And like all other disciples, she must suffer with Jesus if she is going to reign with him. But here through Simeon, God in his kindness is warning of the cross that she must bear. Indeed, all generations will call her blessed, but that blessing will come at a steep cost. Luke goes on to introduce us to another person in verses 36-38, and this time a godly woman named Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's interesting how Luke describes and, and introduces Anna in comparison with Simeon. We're given much more personal detail about her life, and there are rich implications. First, we're told that she was a prophetess. Anna is actually one of only five prophetesses mentioned in scripture and this was a unique period in redemptive history and which included women who would prophesy but at the very least this indicates that Anna like Simeon was filled with the spirit and the word of God second we're told that she's of the daughter of Phanuel and of the tribe of Asher now scripture doesn't say anything else about this man Phanuel but the name Fanuel means face of God. Asher was one of the lost northern tribes of Israel after the dispersion. And these facts may seem random enough, but when they are tied together with the further information that Luke gives us about Anna, we see the deeper significance of her as a symbol and a figure. She is an 84-year-old widow And after a marriage of seven years, she dedicates herself to prayer and fasting in the temple. The number of the years of her marriage is significant, being seven, and it symbolizes a complete and fulfilled marriage, even if shorter than expected. And once her good earthly marriage is ended by death doing them part, she spends the rest of her widowhood being married to Yahweh. The Bible is clear that women who have been widowed are free to marry, and it's even recommended in 1 Timothy 5, especially if a woman is widowed at a young age. However, if she had no children and is left without sufficient care, she should be in the church's care as a widow and should give herself to the church. The way Luke describes her sounds exactly how Paul describes good and healthy widowhood in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. The time of her widowhood is telling as well. Eighty-four years is twelve times seven. Not an accident. Twelve obviously representing the twelve tribes of Israel and seven again representing completeness. Anna is Israel brought to its fullness of time. If the faithful Jew Simeon is a witness with his words, Anna is a witness in her very person. She represents Israel as a whole at this point in history. She is of the tribe of Asher, and Asher itself is symbolic of Israel at this time. Lost by exile and dispersion because of her sin, Israel has become like a widow from Yahweh. Lamentations one one, How lonely sits the city, That was once full of people, how like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations, she who was princess among the provinces has become a slave. But what was once lost with Israel has become found with the coming of the Messiah. The restoration and consolation of Israel has arrived in the person of Jesus, and even the lost and dispersed tribes like Asher are being brought back in. The bridegroom has come to comfort and heal his bride. One of the ways the Bible speaks about God's pleasure or displeasure is the, the countenance of his face, the condition of his face. If he is pleased with his people, his face shines upon them and he gives them peace. We see this in Aaron's blessing from Numbers 6:24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the Lord makes his face to shine on his people, they are saved. This is a common refrain from Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verse 7 Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. On the other hand, when God's people turn their face away from him in their sin, His countenance is not lifted up upon them. His peace is removed for a time so that they might feel the effects of their sin, repent, and seek His face once more. Psalm 27, 9, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in your anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation." It's no accident that Luke mentions Anna's father's name, Phanuel. Here, in the very fullness of her years, after decades of prayers and supplications, she comes face to face with God in the face of Christ, and she is supremely blessed. It is also no accident that she comes up at the very hour Christ is presented in the temple. She has sought God's face her whole life and her prayer is finally answered in God's kind providence. The final verse of our passage summarizes well the actions of these godly saints. Verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. This brings us to the applications of this text for us here today. First, we see the blessing that comes with faithful, patient obedience. Psalm 84.11 has a wonderful promise in it. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Joseph and Mary, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now Simeon and Anna are all described by Luke as godly, faithful saints who have walked uprightly. Their actions display a faith that is very much alive, working itself out in love. And there's no question as to how much God is pleased to bless them. Indeed, they would have probably considered themselves the most blessed humans ever, having beheld God's face and salvation, in the face even of the newborn baby. We should think about our own obedience with this in mind. That God is actually pleased with our faithfulness, when we walk in step with the Spirit, in worship and in prayer, and walk in love together for the glory of His Son. And He delights to make His face to shine upon us and give us an even clearer picture of His glory in the face of Jesus. Make no mistake about it, even though our king and bridegroom is not with us physically since he is ruling as Lord of all from the Father's right hand, we still behold his, faith, his face. Second Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through word and sacrament, by faith we behold the face of God in Christ, and do so in a way that even surpasses a physical glimpse. Second, we ought to take strength from Simeon's approach to death. It's a strong temptation in our day to confuse existence with life and to prioritize quantity over quality of life. COVID exposed this in ways that we couldn't have imagined. But for Simeon, one glimpse of Christ turns the fear of death into something to be embraced with peace. Indeed as Paul says in Philippians 1:21 for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As a matter of fact the deliver the deliverance of our fear of death is described by the author of Hebrews as one of the main reasons the son of god took on flesh and is one of the greatest benefits of the gospel. Hebrews two fourteen through fifteen, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Some of us have may, maybe have faced death recently. Some of us may be currently in the valley of the shadow of death. And indeed, all of us will go the way of all men. But how we steward our encounter with death is a massive opportunity to put on display the complete satisfaction that Christ brings and to show that even our lives are worth nothing in comparison with knowing him, both in life and in death. We can be sure that as Psalm 48, 14 promises, this is our God forever and ever. He will guide us even beyond death. Third, we should be reminded by Simeon's prophecy to Mary the necessary existence of suffering in the Christian life. As a faithful friend and teacher, Jesus makes no bones about it. Matthew 7:13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Even more explicitly, further on in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall man what shall a man give in return for his soul but don't miss the purpose for our suffering our suffering especially when it comes at the expense of others and their sin and as we bear their burdens, is a participation in Christ. We don't suffer on our own. We suffer in and with Christ. Not to take away sins, that's impossible, but to be made more like him in the way we deal with sin and suffering. Paul speaks at length about his own sufferings in many different places, but he uses the most captivating language in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. When we're called to suffering, we can do so with joy, for we suffer in and with the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame. Lastly, we must not miss that while these saints we have been following have been depicted as godly, righteous, and faithful, they are only so because of the presence of the triune God. Even the infant Jesus, though helpless as a babe, is at the same time Almighty God and is sanctifying them by His mere presence. One of my favorite men from the patristic era is a less known saint from the 4th century century. Ephraim of Syria. He's especially enjoyable to read during Advent and Christmas as he wrote 19 hymns on the nativity. And his amazement at the mystery and the wonder of such a miracle as the incarnation is worth quoting, and it highlights what Jesus was also doing in the manger. Mary bare the silent babe, while in him were hidden all tongues. The high one became as a little child, And in him was a a hidden, a treasure of wisdom, sufficing for all. When he sucked the milk of Mary, he was suckling all with life. While he was lying on his mother's bosom, in his bosom were all creatures lying. He was silent as a babe, and yet he was making his creatures execute all his commands. While his body was forming within the womb, his power was fashioning all bodies. While the conception of the son was fashioning in the womb, he himself was fashioning all babies in the womb. So as we close out our time in Luke, let us with Mary embrace the lot and life God has apportioned to us. And with her, let us magnify the Lord. Let us with Joseph hear and obey joyfully, even if it comes at a cost. Let us testify to the Prince of Peace with Zechariah and Simeon and Anna. Let us be marked like these saints by being filled with the Spirit, attending to worship and prayer. And as we move from Christmas to Epiphany to celebrate the light of the world that Simeon spoke about, let us not lose the wonder and joyful mystery of the incarnation of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father,